This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Big election in Peru. I would think this is setting off shockwaves across the mining industry. Pedro Castillo is emerging as the winner of Peru's June 6th presidential election. This election is extremely close. I don't know how this happens. I I really don't. Pedro Castillo has about 50.2% of the vote holding a slim lead, roughly 60,300 votes over conservative rival Keiko Fujimori, who has yet to concede and has alleged fraud despite scant evidence. Well, where have we seen that before? The closeness of these elections boggles my mind. I, I don't know how that works. Like, Is that just... Uh, I don't like, to me that's the most suspicious thing of all. <laughs> and it maybe that's just how it works and both parties know exactly what's going on in this day and age and they just work really they are trying to get razor thin margins here. The National Election Board cannot yet declare a winner because of the challenge presented by Fujimori's campaign. So big drama in Peru, but this really has global implications, I think. You know, to varying degrees, we can argue of how important this election is, but Peru is a pretty important country in the mining world, and it's a pretty important country in Latin America, not to diminish other countries, uh, but it is a significant player from my understanding anyway. Maybe you feel otherwise, but just the take from over here at the Northern Miner Podcast, welcome Thank you for joining us once again. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we have a really exciting show for you today. We are welcoming back Stephen Stewart of Orefinders, and we just had Stephen on a couple of months ago, I think in February, where he was discussing the young mining professionals, and I believe he's the head of that organization over there, and he was announcing the winners of the last Young Mining Professionals Awards, and now he is talking with... Northern Miner reporter Henry Lazenby about his projects in Ontario's Kirkland Lake District. This includes Mustango Resources and Ore Finders, which Kirkland Lake Gold has taken, I think it was a 9.9% stake in. So Stephen Stewart will be talking to Henry Lazenby about what's going on over there. It is a thought leadership podcast, so it is sponsored, but Stephen Stewart is well-known in the Canadian mining industry and really probably, it's a small world, he's probably well-known internationally. I met Stephen Stewart in London at the Canadian Mining Symposium near, gosh, four years ago, I'm guessing. So it's always great to have him back and he's always got a lot of interesting things to say and especially if you're into gold, big deposits, knowing where the gold industry stands, There is a lot to sink your teeth into here, 
as well, a little more housekeeping here. We are now signing up delegates for Equity Metals Corporate Webinar. And if you would like to register to join their director and president, Joe Kiesis, and VP of Exploration, Robert McDonald, as they make a case for investment in equity metals and take live questions from attendees, simply go to investors.northernminer.com slash equity dash metals. And that is taking place on June 16th. That is taking place tomorrow on June 16th at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again, if you want to register, simply go to investors.northernminer.com slash equity metals. Lots going on in this show. Again, Stephen Stewart, I have a little Rio Tinto story uh, that I just couldn't resist. It was just a kind of set off some question marks, and I thought it was worth taking a quick look as we continue to monitor what is happening over there and any story relating to the board of Rio Tinto I am all over. And I came across one on Reuters, so I was just curious. So I thought, you know, let's see what you think of it. I thought it just kind of raised more question marks. We shall see. And, of course, we have the Peruvian elections, which we are going to tackle right now. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram, at the northernminer. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And don't forget SoundCloud, where we also have listeners. And with that, let's turn to the news. So as we were saying, Pedro Castillo is emerging as a likely winner of Peru's contested presidential election. This is by Cecilia Jamesmi. And with 99.6% of the votes counted, Castillo had about 50.2% of the votes, roughly 60,300, over conservative rival Keiko Fujimori, who is alleging fraud despite scant evidence. Seems like a journalistic trope that has entered our lexicon that with all the fake news and uh, that now journalists are weighing in on the evidence and it's i think they've been forced to is my take on it so i actually uh i don't judge that in a bad way at all i think journalists are forced to say this now the national election board has not declared a winner yet because of the challenge taking a page from donald trump's playbook fujimori has asked the jne the national election board to annul the results from 802 voting booths the vast majority in regions that voted Overwhelmingly for Castillo, the former teacher and union leader won 16 regions in the country to nine for Fujimori, while Castillo has vowed to tear up Peru's decades-old constitution, take up to 70% of profits from mining companies operating in the country, and introduce new royalties on mineral sales, analysts are not too worried. His campaign has softened its stance on nationalization but maintains that extractive companies are not paying enough taxes. A Castillo presidency would review tax stability agreements, as well as look at and likely increase royalties paid by the mining and hydrocarbon companies. You know, I don't think anybody knows. The analysts are not too worried. Well, I, I don't think anybody knows because he may have softened his message 
simply to get elected. So, I mean, these analysts pay more attention than I do, but I don't know. I won't get too complacent there. Analysts, Fujimori's campaign focused primarily on the country's mineral wealth with the plan to use 40% of taxes paid by miners for direct payments to residents in mining zones. Wow. This is the conservative candidate, by the way. She also proposed a, quote, voluntary contribution system for companies to pay more as mineral prices climb. A voluntary contribution system. Well, you see which way the winds are blowing out there. You know, it's easy to forget if you're making a lot of money, it's easy to forget there are a lot of people who are not making a lot of money out there. And what about them? As all these asset prices go to the moon and we all, you know, with assets, all sing a wonderful song about how rich we're getting. I only have, I barely have any assets, by the way, but I do have some. What about people with no assets? You know, so you see which way things are going in Peru when the conservative candidate is planning direct payments to residents in mining zones from mining companies, 40% of the taxes paid by miners, and a, quote, voluntary contribution, end quote, system for companies to pay more as mineral prices climb. You know who I'd love to ask their opinion on all this and what their thoughts are? I mean, it would be hard to not get an official answer, but Mark Bristow. I would be really curious to just have a fly-on-the-wall, earshot view of what he's thinking when he's talking to his CFO about what's going on in Peru. Whoever is declared the official winner, experts say, will face a deeply fragmented legislature with 10 diverse political parties, none of which hold a majority. Castillo's Free Peru Socialists will have the largest bloc followed by Fujimori's conservatives. Peru posted its worst economic plunge in three decades last year, with growth falling by 11% and copper output 12.5% lower than in 2019. Well, I don't think that's a huge shock, is it? Mining is a major economic engine in Peru, accounting for nearly 60% of the Andean nation's exports. The copper-producing country second only to neighboring Chile, has 46 mining projects representing potential investment of $56 billion in the pipeline. Peru is a top global player in silver, gold, zinc, and lead production. So you're on notice, mining companies operating in Peru. Time to pay attention because things are getting real. Moving on. While we're scouring the globe here, let me just bring up this Reuters story, which just kind of caught my eye. I'm just finding this Rio Tinto board. My journalistic instincts are flashing red, red has little red lights. I don't know. Maybe there's nothing here. I mean, so I'm just sharing some of the stories that are out there. This is from Reuters. Aboriginal group disappointed by Rio Tinto board hire. And it says here, an Aboriginal group on whose lands Rio Tinto mines iron ore in Western Australia said it did not support the miners' board appointment of former state minister Ben Wyatt, citing his approvals that led to the destruction of cultural heritage sites. So Rio Tinto has just appointed the government official who greenlighted the destruction of the cultural heritage sites that led to the resignation of Rio Tinto's former CEO, Jean-Sébastien Jacques, precisely for this issue. Continuing on, Wyatt 
The state's former treasurer and Aboriginal Affairs Minister is to be Rio's first Indigenous board member, the firm said on Friday. So he is Indigenous as it moves to restore a reputation tarnished after last year's destruction of the Jukin Gorge rock shelters. And we have a quote from Glenn Camille, chairman of the firm that holds native titles to the lands. Quote, unfortunately, our engagement with Mr. Wyatt has not been positive, and we do not see him helping to restore Rio's reputation with Indigenous stakeholders. The firm's view was largely based on Wyatt's consistent approval of applications to destroy Aboriginal heritage sites in the state's development process, it said in a statement late on Friday. So this is according to the firm that Glenn Camille is a part of that holds native title to the lands. The firm, the Winatwari Guruma Aboriginal Corporation, or the WGAC, holds native title to an area of the Pilbara that contains almost 40% of Rio's Australian iron ore mines. You know, Bill Gallagher, for those that are interested in the Canadian version of this, go follow Bill Gallagher on Twitter. He has made a career out of following the uh, tension between mining and development, exploration, and Aboriginal lands in Canada. So he's been on the bleeding edge of that. We've interviewed him a couple of times on the Northern Miner podcast, former host John Cumming. Continuing on with the story, Rio Tinto declined to comment, and Wyatt, who retired from politics in March after 15 years in state parliament, said the overall response to his appointment had been positive, particularly among Aboriginal people and groups. And he told ABC Radio Perth on Friday, quote, but I've been perplexed that some of the critique has come from people and organizations that have demanded Aboriginal people get on boards and have a say, and yet critiquing me going on. I suspect it's just a case of, well, not that Aboriginal. People need to have a look at themselves in the way they conduct themselves in some of this debate. Over the decade from July 2010, state ministers for Aboriginal Affairs approved all but one of more than 460 applications from minors to disturb or destroy sites of potential cultural significance, Parliament records show. These include a decision by Wyatt to allow the destruction of 50 sites sacred to WGAC at Spear Hill in 2017 in an application by Fortescue Metals without considering information from the traditional owners, the firm said. And we have an additional quote from the firm, quote, during his four years as minister, Wyatt never once met with any of the Wintawari elders or board despite board invitations stretching back to December 2019. So the plot thickens. An interesting development there with the board at Rio Tinto. So again, it just kind of raises more questions. We're going to follow it. I don't want to make any presumptions here, but it just kind of raises more questions. And I wanted to share that. Moving on, Ganfang Lithium is going to buy 50% of a Mali mine for $130 million. This is also by Cecilia Jimasmi. China's Ganfang Lithium, one of the world's top producers of the commodity used in electric vehicle batteries, is acquiring a 50% stake in a special purpose vehicle that owns the Gula Mina hard rock mine in Mali for $130 million US. Ganfang, which counts automakers Tesla and BMW among its customers, said the move will grant it at least half of Gulamina's first phase annual output 
estimated at 450,000 tons of spodumene. Mali's government can take 10% of the equity free of charge and pay in cash for up to 10% more. The Chinese company said, Ganfeng's move mirrors that of Zijin Mining and Citic, which last week secured 100% of the copper production from Ivanhoe Mines, recently launched Kamoa Kakula Mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the drip continues out of China of securing these strategic resources, particularly in Africa. Is there anything else on this? It also follows a similar deal Ganfang inked in December to buy spodumene concentrate from the Manono mine in the DRC for an initial five-year period. The company did not take an equity stake in ABZ Minerals, the operation's owner. In early May, Ganfang also announced the acquisition of lithium explorer and developer Bacanora Lithium and became the sole owner of the Sonora project in Mexico. The mine is expected to begin production in 2023 and produce 35,000 tons of lithium per year. Once at full tilt, the Chinese company is also exploring setting up battery plants in Argentina, where it is developing the Cachari Olaroz lithium brine project. And this kind of dovetails into that story about how China wants to become one of the biggest producers of NEVs, new energy vehicles in the world. And get this. Great reporting here from Cecilia. A recent report by the International Energy Agency recommends governments start stockpiling battery metals, noting that lithium demand could increase 40-fold in the next 20 years. The IEA is recommending governments start stockpiling battery metals. IEA Executive Director Fatih Birol said this would become, quote, an energy security, end quote, issue. China dominates lithium processing, while mine supply largely comes from Chile in Australia. So, again, you see which way the wind's blowing in this world. A chill summer, but always a sense of angst and consternations on the fringe of the global narrative. And then we have another story relating to the G7, investors with $41 trillion, investors with $41 trillion urge G7 to end support for coal. You know, when we talk about ESG investing, we always see these, you know, $10 trillion. Now it's $41 trillion. Like, I think we're on our way to a quadrillion dollars of in, in investor money is now ESG related. Is it really going to be $41 trillion? Like I, At this point, I want to see the math. If we're going to start saying that $41 trillion in assets are doing anything, I want to see the math. I want to see, because you know these numbers, I'm not sure where they come from. I'm not sure where they come from. What is the U.S. deficit or debt? Isn't it like $27 trillion? So now we're saying $41 trillion in assets. Like at what point? Do we hit an absurdity, but soapbox over? A group of 457 investors, which oversees more than $41 trillion in assets combined. Is there too much money out there? <laughs> I think there's $41 trillion just for ESG investors. Anyways, and, and a coalition of 79 company CEOs are calling on the G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US to work harder on reducing greenhouse emissions and cut funding for fossil fuels. 
In separate letters to governments as leaders of the G7 meet in England and ahead of a global climate summit in November, the two groups agreed on the need for, quote, bold and courageous immediate action to limit global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius as set out by the Paris Agreement in December 2015. Fidelity International, Schroeder's, DWS Group, Legal and General Investment Management and Pacific Investment Management were among the hundreds of influential investors to sign the petition to all governments as leaders of the G7 meet in England. Again, Fidelity's big, but if that's the biggest name on here and it's $41 trillion, I want to see the math. This sounds like a press release, and next time it's going to be $100 trillion, and we're not going to get the math on this. Continuing, they represent the largest collective assets under management to sign on to a global investor statement to governments on climate change since the first petition in 2009. And the World Economic Forum's managing director, Dominic Woray, said, quote, it is an important and significant move for this many CEOs to put their names forward for deeper collective collaboration. And Stephanie Pfeiffer, CEO of the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, says, quote, for market commitments to translate into the required change in the real economy, we need a policy environment that closes the gaps between climate ambition and policy action. And our friends at the IEA are back. And they are calling for an urgent ban on new fossil fuel projects. The International Energy Agency, that just, this is the sentence. The chief executive's calls, the chief executive's call echoes concerns voiced in a recent report by the International Energy Agency, highlighting the need for an urgent ban on new fossil fuel projects. Well, you know, Heraclitus has this great line, the sun is new each day. And it's one of my favorite lines in ancient philosophy. And the sun is new each day. Today, the International Energy Agency, according to this report, is urging the need to ban fossil fuel projects. Now, I'm not saying if that's a good or a bad thing, but that just kind of boggles my mind. So a lot of numbers being thrown around here. Let's see what actually happens. But yeah, you would think with $41 trillion behind you, that would turn some heads when you walk in a room or when you sign a petition. That is a petition people are going to listen to. Anyways, enough of me. Those are your news stories. Now let's turn to metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Actually, a new feature I would like to put in metal prices is actually, I think we should look at the 10-year bond quickly because that is just such a good contrast. I think this will just give us a leg up on everybody who's just looking at the metal prices. We are looking at the 10-year bond. It is at 1.5%. And last week, It was at 1.55%, meaning yields are going down, suggesting that inflation is transitory. Now let's look at metal prices. So taking a look at gold, it is trading at $1,867.10 per ounce. That is $28 lower than last week's quote. And silver is trading at $27.71 per ounce. That is two cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,156.84 per ounce. 
That is $11 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $2,763.90 per ounce. That is $57 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.55 per pound. That is eight cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.13 per pound. That is four cents higher. Lead is three cents higher at a dollar per pound. Nickel is 17 cents higher at $8.30 per pound. Tin is at $15 even. That is two cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $19.28 per pound. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.37 per pound. So what do we see? Basically holding steady, slightly lower with precious metals, while industrial metals are steady and a little bit higher with tin as a standout, nickel being strong. They look pretty strong, the industrial metals. They're slightly higher, precious metals slightly lower. So basically, all in all, metals are kind of even while yields go lower on the 10-year, suggesting that inflation is transitory on the 10-year while metal prices remain elevated but not going into the stratosphere yet. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, Stephen Stewart, Chairman and Director of Mustango Resources. He is also CEO and Director of Orefinders Resources and QC Copper and Gold. And he is the Chair of Baseload Energy Corporation. He's also the founder of the Ore Group, an organization focused on natural resource discovery and development. And he's also the founder and chairman of the Young Mining Professionals Scholarship Fund. He talks to Northern Miner reporter Henry Lazenby in this special thought leadership segment. Good day, and thank you for joining me. I am Henry Lazenby, a multimedia content creator for the Northern Miner. Joining me today is Stephen Stewart, the CEO of Orefinders Resources and chairman of Mustango River Resources. The company recently made the headline after announcing a proposed three-way partnership with Kirtland Lake Gold to unlock value. Thank you, Stephen, for making the time to talk to me today. Hey, good morning. My pleasure. Uh, very, very happy to be here with the Northern Miner again. All right. So let's start off by looking at the two junior companies you are involved with, Orefinders and Mustango. How do they relate to each other? So Orefinders, I've been at the helm of Orefinders. Well, ever since the uh, the beginning of the company, I was involved with this formation. In 2015, I took over as CEO. And uh, we have been ha having a counter-cyclical approach to acquiring assets in a down market, which it was in 2015, ever ever since until the beginning of 2020. And so we spent uh, all of our efforts on acquisitions uh, in a down cycle and oftentimes uh, from distressed situations. That's how we acquired our McGarry project. It was from a company that was looking to exit Ontario and restructuring. And that's also how we earned our interest into Mustango, which is a story that leads back to 2018. And and where we acquired a 31% interest in that company from Osisco Gold Royalties. And the, the company at the time was led by a completely different management team. 
and uh, and board of directors, and we saw a value disconnect between what we paid for that 31% and ultimately the asset that it had. And at the time, its flagship asset was the Omega, which is about a 600,000 ounce asset located right next to Orfinder's McGarry project and also located very proximate to the Kerr-Addison, which is a 11 million ounce former producer and now a 6 million ounce one gram deposit. So the company at the time was traded for less than a million dollars. We we got our position for about $250,000 and initiated a, a proxy battle. We, we went directly to shareholders and we removed management in late 2019. It was a big process to undertake, a big risk, but we overcame the odds. And when we took it over, we focused our attention on a little parcel of asset it had next to the Macassa. And the Macassa, of course, is Kirkland Lake Gold's flagship asset, one of the highest, if not the highest, grade gold mines in the world, certainly in Canada, uh, and it's got a huge mine life on it. So so that's a very interesting parcel of, of land, uh, especially when you consider it's directly on strike to the the, the larder catalyte fault or the O4 uh, break. So the gold bearing structure, if you will. And then we focus our attention on expanding that land package, which we did quite successfully. We ended up getting about 5,000 hectares of land adjacent and contiguous. And it's our belief that the mineralization from the Kirkland Lake ore body, which is larger than the Macassa itself, the Macassa is just a seventh mine to extract, but we believe that it went westward and, and that's where our land package is. And so that's what a Mistango evolved into. It evolved into owning what we call the Kirkland Lake West. And then of course it still has the Omega, which was the original intent. And of course, ore finders had it still retains its interest in in Mustango. So it is a significant shareholder. It, it started off with 31. It's a uh, percent that is, and it's probably about 19 percent after we've uh, uh, issued new shares to finance ourselves. Mustango now has seven and a half million dollars in cash in it, but the company has been transformed. It had been literally revived from its deathbed and and turned into a very well capitalized company with two very interesting projects in a, in a great jurisdiction which of course is Kirkland Lake and that's where ore finders you know you know not by not by chance but by design that's where we uh, when i say we i mean ore finders has its assets too so you've got these two companies very similar in terms of asset profile same management teams very similar uh, cash in the bank and that they both have well over $7 million in cash. And now, of course, they both have this really interesting uh, deal with Kirkland Lake Gold, which we'll see Kirkland Lake Gold spend uh, $120 million to develop their respective assets within those two companies. So so that's sort of the, the, the genesis of how uh, Mustango, our interest in Mustango came to be and why we've got these two companies, which are neighbors, sister companies, same uh, profiles, and it just sort of gives a little bit of context uh, behind the, the, the history. I understand they're also under the same umbrella parent company. Well, it's uh, not not so much a parent company, but but uh, yeah, I guess you could call it a parent company. That's the Ore Group, O R E Group, and that is our group based here out of Toronto. Uh, we've got a, a dozen or so, uh, what we say, like-minded professionals. We're entrepreneurs who invest in our, our time, money, and uh, skill set in either discovering new ore bodies or expanding upon existing resource and deposits, so that we can uh, add value for us and our shareholders and. And you're right, within the, the ore group, we've got, of course, Ore Finders and Mistango are, are two of the six companies. We've got QC Copper, 
which is it was a spinoff of Ore Finders Resources. That's got a copper asset in the Shibugamu district, which we're developing. We've got uh, Baseload Energy, which is a uranium exploration company in the Athabasca, which is very interesting to us. We're big believers in in uh, uranium and, of course, copper too, green metal energies. And then we just launched American Eagle Gold, which was a spinoff of Ore Finders again. So Ore Finders is quite active in, in terms of creating opportunities and dividends. And then our newest uh, incarnation will be exposure to the nickel space, which again is complements our views on uh, call it the electrification revolution that's coming. It's just going to uh, be monumental in terms of uh, not replacing entirely, but slowly supplanting the the oil, the fossil fuels industry. And so D Block is is going to be launching on the TSX venture in just a few months. We've announced the transaction. We've got two assets. That we're quite excited about. So we love gold and we love metals that uh, reflect the transition away from fossil fuels towards clean green energy, which you know, is produced with uranium, transported with copper, and then ultimately stored, at least in the autom automotive industry, through nickel. Okay, so let's dive into the recent deal with Kirkland Lake. Uh, what are some of the key details about the deal and how is it positioned to unlock value of these assets that you've mentioned? So it's really about diversifying our risk and covering our downside by having uh, access to capital uh, throughout the, 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 the evolution of discovery. Discovery is a high risk business and it takes time. Of course, you can get lucky. Things could change tomorrow. We could discover uh, an ore body um, with a drill bit, but it doesn't always happen right away. And so to secure a $120 million commitment from a major mining company like Kirkland Lake Gold uh, speaks to the quality of our assets. Clearly, uh, our team loves our assets. We wouldn't have acquired any asset had we, we not felt that it has the potential, the risk adjusted potential, because we, we never know until we drill it. Plenty of juniors can easily say that. Very few juniors can have the luxury uh, or the advantage of having a major mining company, a very reputable company saying, you know what, we agree. And so that's that's part and parcel of, of not why we did the deal, but I think that does speak to the intangibles of being able to do a deal with Kirkland Lake. However, really, it, the bottom line is the investment. OK, so again, they're coming in. Well, first, they they, they invested 9.9 percent in the equity of each of the two companies, which is uh, round figures, about a four and a half, five million dollar investment. But really, the, the big numbers come to about putting steel into the ground where they're going to be putting the $120 million into uh, the five assets collectively, which are housed within Ore Finders and Mistango, which are all in the Kirkland Lake camp. So that's what they saw. They saw potential to grow. I think all mining companies are looking for towards this next cycle to replenish their ounces. Uh, we give them an excellent footprint. I think between Mistango and Ore Finders, we are the second largest landholder in, in the district. And we've got uh, really excellent real estate, particularly on the major fault system, which has been producing gold for 100 years and will be producing gold for another 100. So I think Kirkland Lake took a long-term view, invested in the team, invested in our assets. And uh, we're, as we speak, we are uh, designing our drill programs, our future drill programs for both ore finders and, and Mistango. And we'll be coming out with uh, those specific details in the not too distant future. So please tell me a little bit more about the geology of the fault itself. Uh, we're talking about the Cadillac Larder break. A leg break, right? Why does it continue to be so prospective for gold exploration, given its uh, multi hundreds of million ounce history? Well, you know what? 
the the genesis of the of the gold is, is is something that I wouldn't be able to do it justice. We'll have to come back another time and invite Charles Beaudry or Keith Ben to tell you about how that ore got deposited. What I can tell you is that the the fault system, and we'll call it very simplistically, the the Cadillac Larder Lake fault, which which runs anywhere from you know obviously west of Kirkland Lake and arguably goes all the way over to Valdor. It has produced gold for, as I said, 100 years, and, and it's probably going to go for long after I am gone. Just to very simply, it's a, it's a crack in the Earth's fault, and fluids uh, over uh, billions of years ago or hundreds of millions of years ago ultimately deposited this gold. And, and there's an awful lot of it there when you find it in traps, okay? So you're always looking for these, these, these conduits, and then ultimately it's traps for the, the, the gold to fall out of solution. Uh, in, into economic quantities. And for whatever reason, uh, the town of Kirkland Lake, as it's now known, was discovered very much because of, of the gold that was deposited there and found by Harry Oaks, if you go back, was the first individual to find gold in that area and became ultimately the richest individual in the world. But anyways, it is a, you know, there's no doubt about it. There's been plenty of gold taken out. In fact, 25 million ounces of gold have been extracted from that exact ore body, call it the Kirkland Lake ore body. The Macasa, again, is just the seventh mine to extract from this single ore body. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And then there is no doubt in my mind that there are other ore bodies, either co continuations of the Kirkland Lake ore body itself or new ore bodies that are located on that stretch between Lauder Lake and Kirkland Lake. There's no doubt in my mind, we just haven't found it yet. Of course, and then many people don't appreciate that the Kerr-Addison mine, which I mentioned, is about 25 kilometers to the east. And so that's sort of the gold goalposts between two world-class mines in that district. So between those two goalposts, uh, that's where we focused our uh, land consolidation. That's where we're focusing our exploration efforts. Uh, we're not the only groups doing it. Agnico Eagle has a, has a major presence in the area as well, and there are a couple other juniors. So there's it's a very well-endowed system. The trick is finding it in economic quantities. And, and now that we have this investment from Kirkland Lake Gold, I think our odds of finding that uh, game-changing drill hole have increased. Ultimately, that's what it's about. We have to make um, risk-adjusted decisions in our business. There are trade-offs. Uh, we, we bring new money in to increase our odds of, of making more money and finding discoveries. So ostensibly, uh, the deal is structured around potential future synergies with the existing uh, infrastructure that Kirkland Clay has in the region. Um, am I correct in that submission? That's possible. I mean, you, you, you never say never. It's certainly if we were to find uh, the extension of the Macasa or the Kirkland Lake ore body, and it's very proximate to their mill, uh, I, I would certainly be the first to say it doesn't make sense to build you know, a, a new processing facility. Obviously, you'd probably have to build a new shaft, et cetera. Uh, but that's that's uh, not that difficult to do. But certainly, you would, you'd like to take advantage of the infrastructure in place. But but that said, if we found a deposit over towards the east where the, um, on our McGarry project or our Omega project where there's existing resources, maybe that would justify justify its own mill. Again, it's that you have to put it in the context of how large is the discovery you've made can it justify it? The, the CapEx to build its own mill? Does it make sense? Or do you ship at 20 kilometers? Uh, does that mill have uh, capacity? So there's lots of variables in play. Obviously, all else equal, you'd love to use uh, existing infrastructure as much as possible. Certainly roads, crew, power, all those elements are there. 
really the the only question mark would be building your own processing facility. So just looking at the broader picture, um, what can be said about the timing of this deal? Does it mean that reserve replacement is starting to move up on the priority list of materials and majors? Absolutely. There's there's just no question about it. You know, for the last 10 years, let's just say, by and large, there's obviously exceptions to the rule. The mining companies have been focusing on delevering and uh, hydrating their deposits and not investing in the juniors. We haven't seen this wave of M&A that we've seen in past cycles. It just hasn't happened yet. So so I think there's there's absolutely no question that all the major mining companies are shifting their thoughts towards growth. The trend in the investment community has been to get their houses in order, okay? So so um, reinvest internally and and focus on profitability as to growth. However, and that's true and they should have done that and they I think by and large they've done it, okay? So if you look at the balance sheets of the producers, they're in really really good shape. Debt they've delevered the free cash flow flowing to the bottom lines of all the good operators are phenomenal. At $1,900 gold, at you know, $1,000 ASIC, those margins are phenomenal. And so that cash is, is going to burn the hole through some of these guys' pockets, I think. And they're going to be forced to think about Newmont, for example, produces 7 million ounces of gold a year. It is virtually impossible to uh, find 7 million ounces of mineable gold every single year. So how do they replace those reserves? Well, you know, usually M&A, either through um, big companies like potentially with Barrick, there's lots of speculation around that, or take out the next big discovery that is not in production. And then that's, of course, that's the biggest example. And it all goes all the way down to your uh, sub-million ounce producers. But I believe M&A is inevitable. That's how this industry has survived and thrived over the years. And uh, I think the industry is just ripe uh, for that. And then on top of that, we're just not finding it like we used to, are we? I mean, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, even, we were finding 10 million ounce deposits every year. Now, I mean, there hasn't been a real 10 million ounce deposit probably since Malarctic. And that was, you know, getting back 15 years ago. So it's uh, if we're finding it, it's lower grade. It's in riskier jurisdictions. It's undercover. So to to find quality deposits in great jurisdictions that have grade are, are fewer and fewer and farther between. So so once that process gets underway and then, of course, you know, the human psychology of the market is going to come into play and we're going to get, as they say, FOMO. And that's when the cycle builds up and people start overpaying for assets. And then, you know, the whole cycle continues just as it did in the last cycle. But I think we're, we're many years away from that. It hasn't really even begun but we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the beginning of it with gold price holding in its eighteen, nineteen hundred dollar level, and 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 all likelihood reaching all time highs fairly soon. So, have any of the assets uh, currently in play have had prior economical studies completed on them uh, in previous years? Yes, um, our ore finders Murado has a PEA project uh, on on it that we we did back a number of years ago. It's a small scale mining operation, not not something that we're uh, pursuing at this point in time. I believe small scale mining is not the way to go. Really, you want to you want to uh, make it as big as possible and then evaluate the economics. Also, our McGarry ore finders McGarry has a, a PEA on it as well. Again, a small scale mining operation. However, that's that's an exception where it's got actually has amazing infrastructure. It's got a head frame in place. And and they were down um, mining it on a small scale level back in 2013. But that's when the, the, the gold price collapsed and, and there wasn't the capital available. And that's ultimately why we ended up 
acquiring at such such favorable terms because uh, that didn't work out and they ultimately went belly up and we picked up the piece. So again, I'm not looking to repeat the sins of the past. We're looking at it in the context of let's find something new, something bigger. We're at this stage, we're more focused on uh, discovery of something brand new along the fault or the expansion of existing resources. We're not looking at a production scenario in the near term. All right. And then when can we expect any of these concrete exploration plans to be made public? Very soon. In fact, just this Monday morning, we had our, our team meeting and we're discussing our plans. I would expect in the coming weeks, we'll have more definition around what exactly we're going to do. Uh, I suspect for ore finders, our, our shareholders there can expect us to focus some attention on our McGarry project. I've been talking a lot about that. We just completed a very significant geophysics program aimed at delineating new targets. Again, we're not going at the, the resource as it's understood. We're going over here, so to speak. Uh, we did uh, IP-induced polarization and, and MT, which is designed at seeing at depth. We had some very interesting anomalies, and they're ripe for drill testing. So that's where I think shareholders can expect us to focus on there. And then on Mustango, we're going to go back and we're going to, uh, while we do have the Omega, it's very interesting to us. We think it, it absolutely has the potential to go to a million ounces and more, and it's near-surface mineralization. But uh, I think our shareholders, and certainly me, I think the, the best game-changing risk-adjusted return, so where we want to put our, our money is going to be on our Kirkland West project, which is, again, right beside the world's highest-grade gold mine, which is the Macassa. So we'll, we'll have more details on that coming out in the not-too-distant future. So, so those are the two projects within the companies where I think uh, we'll be focusing on next is the Kirkland West from Mustango and the McGarry project for ore finders. All right. So what did we miss? Is there anything else that we should touch on that I've not specifically asked you about? I think, again, our, our objective here is to put money back into the ground, do so in partnership with Kirkland Lake Gold. And we're, we're seeking their advice and they're following ours. We're working so far very well together and, and uh, we're excited to, to announce these drill programs because that's how we're going to make our investors the types of return they expect from junior mining companies. All right. Uh, that was Stephen Stewart, the CEO of Orefinders Resources and chairman of Mustango River Resources. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to Mr. Stephen Stewart for sponsoring this week's podcast. And thank you to Henry Lazenby for the fine job interviewing him. Looks like Stephen is up to some pretty cool things that look very, very promising, and he's investor-focused, so definitely keep an eye on what he's up to. Thank you for joining the podcast once again, and thank you for sharing it with your friends. I hope you're enjoying your summer. The weather is getting pretty great out here in Berlin. I hope it is where you are, too, and lots more exciting stuff to come. Until next week, take care. This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF.